Okay, so we're going to start with the first question, and Tarana has kindly been sending me sending me questions on WhatsApp this time. So, uh, like I said, it's not going to be censored, although we can always edit out the um, we can edit the uh, recording later if um, if we find that some of the content is uh, for sense is very sensitive, or if we feel that maybe um, uh, you know we can always make it a pr- more private link, like we did with the first one. So let's see, question number one. My friend didn't have sex with her husband in many years. The husband has a problem, but he never wanted to take Viagra. They told him it's not safe. Is that couple still considered married? Does she have any options? So obviously, this is a really sensitive question about uh, marital relations. The short answer to it, to start, is that the husband is obligated to have you know, to be intimate with his wife on a regular basis. That's one of the requirements in the Ketubah. It's one of the requirements of marriage. And if he's not able to meet that obligation, she has the right to press him to uh, end the marriage. Now, obviously, we don't want that to happen. That would not be ideal, and we would never want um, a marriage to end for that reason. So the right thing to do is for the husband to take whatever steps are necessary medically or if there are psychological issues psychologically but it sounds like in this case it would be a medical issue to address the problem because he has an obligation to the wife now that doesn't mean that they're automatically not married there's no such thing as automatically not being married uh, because of a problem in the in the relationship but the husband would be obligated to address his medical issue so that the couple could be intimate otherwise he's not satisfying his obligations in the marriage and then his wife has a right to uh, request from him uh, divorce proceedings, and that would have to go through the bet din. But obviously, before we allowed something like that to happen, we would want them to explore every possible avenue, every safe medical uh, method of correcting the problem, so that that so it would not come to that. So, to the question of what should be done, the answer is that some medical intervention or psychological intervention should be done. They are still considered married. But that doesn't mean that the husband is satisfying, is fulfilling his obligations within the marriage, since the Ketubah stipulates that he does have to uh, be intimate with his wife. So therefore, it's his responsibility to correct the problem. The only option she would have is to explain to him that uh, this is an obligation, or they can consult with a rabbi that they feel comfortable with, or that he would feel comfortable with, or they can consult with a doctor to find an option that the husband's doctor considers to be safe and effective for him to address his medical condition or his problem with intimacy. Number two is, is there a halachic issue with doing yoga? A lot of it is bowing down and saying weird mantras. It just feels very avodazara-i. So it feels idolatrous. Now, this is an interesting question. In India, if you ask a Jew from India, they will tell you that in India, Jewish people do not do yoga. It is actually considered a religious practice in India. It's, it's associated with religion. So Indian Jews that I know, meaning in, uh, Jews from India who actually lived in India, told me that in India, the idea of going to yoga was unheard of for a Jew. That wasn't something Jews did because it was actually associated with the uh, religious culture. In America... Yoga has absolutely nothing to do with religion. Most people who practice yoga obviously don't ascribe any religious meaning to it at all. They may not be at all religious or believe in anything, let alone are they attributing to the yoga practice any 
religious meaning. Now, I personally have never done yoga, so I am not familiar with the details of it. But if the practice has any medical or psychological benefit, and it's now done independently of any religious overtones, in our culture, it is not seen in Western culture as having any religious meaning. It's seen as meditative or a form of exercise or a form of psychological um, healing or maybe a physical, uh, it has physical benefits. All of these are real tangible benefits. So there's no reason not to, uh, to do yoga. Now, as for the mantras or whatever, these are done as part of, as far as I know, and again, I'm not an expert in yoga, so maybe it would be better to consult with somebody who knows more. But from my understanding, what I've gathered all those mantras and the bowing and so on are part of the meditative aspect and they're supposed to, and they have to do with the mind and the body and, and uh, don't have any religious overtones or significance. In a setting where the yoga was connected in any way with some religious meaning, so there, of course, you would have a problem because it would be considered um, a religious practice of another religion. But since it is divorced from that in our culture and it's just a form of exercise, so there shouldn't be any objection to it that I could see. Obviously, again, if it takes on any religious meaning, then you would have a problem. We have similar phenomena with other self-help groups, like let's say Alcoholics Anonymous or other things like that, that invoke some concept of God. They invoke a concept of God, but it's a sort of generic idea of God. It's not related to any religion, and therefore it's not objectionable, it's not problematic from our perspective because it has, a, it has a benefit. The support group of Alcoholics Anonymous has a benefit. And so the fact that it might have had roots in some kind of religious belief doesn't make it a, an invalid treatment or an invalid uh, practice. So as long as there's no explicit religious meaning to it, should be okay. Now, um, specific follow-up. Uh, what about a sun salutation, which was originally a form of sun worship, but is commonplace now as a yoga practice? Well. I'm not familiar with that, so I don't know what, what, it's, what it means in the context of the yoga. I would have to investigate that better and have more knowledge of it, and I'm, not, I'm certainly not an expert in yoga. What I, do, what I would say is that if it's something that has lost all religious meaning for the people who are practicing it, and it's meant to be some kind of a psychological uh, practice or mental or meditative practice, it wouldn't necessarily be objectionable if it doesn't have any worship, worship meaning behind it. Uh, there are plenty of things that we have in our culture today that are carryovers from an idolatrous time. What do we call the first day of the week? Sunday. What do we call the second day of the week? Monday, which is, uh, which is, um, which is the moon. Uh, we we name the days of the week after uh, uh, after uh, you know idolatrous um, gods, or that, that the reason why they had those names was because they signified uh, some something in idolatry, something of uh, pagan origin. So just the fact that something has pagan origin doesn't necessarily mean that it's prohibited if the pagan origin has been completely eliminated. A better question is today about celebrating New Year's because New Year's is still celebrated in the Catholic Church as a holiday, and yet many Jews, even observant Jews, still mark the day and celebrate it as, a, as if it were a secular holiday. The reality is that that's a much more complicated issue. Halloween, of course, we know is a pagan holiday that then became a Christian holiday. Um, it, became, it started, somebody's asking about Halloween just as I'm talking about it. Um, Halloween began as a pagan holiday. It, it morphed into a, Jew, into a Christian holiday. It is actually 
still a Catholic holiday. If you look at the calendar of the Catholic, the official calendar, Vatican calendar of holy days, you will see All Hallows Eve, also known as Halloween, is a, uh, is a holiday in the Catholic Church. And the following day, All Saints Day, is a holiday in the Catholic Church. Um, just like New Year's Day is a holiday in the Catholic Church. Um, and it is known in some Christian traditions as the Feast of the Holy Circumcision. Because since they believe that their Messiah was born on December 25th, his circumcision, his Brit Milah, would have been on New Year's Day. And that is one of the Christian re- reasons that they give for celebrating it as a, as a holy day. But you could see, I mean, um, if you follow, I mean, if you look on social media around New Year's, you'll see that there's a special mass that's offered in the Catholic Church on New Year's Day. So it's still marked as a Catholic holiday. It's much more complicated. People tend to think of it as totally secularized, just like Halloween, but these still are actively used as, um, are actively observed even in our own country uh, as religious holidays. So it's very problematic. As opposed to yoga, where I don't think there's anybody that you'll encounter or that you'll see in America that considers yoga to be religious, maybe spiritual, maybe meditative, but not um, worship oriented in any way. Now, if there's an exception to it, then that would be an exception, uh, but we would have to know specifically what the, uh, what the ideas are behind the, the yoga that we're, that, we're, uh, in, that we're in. I don't know, what, you know how much it differs. Yeah, do the people, so, oh, so the question is, what about the people in India? Yeah, so in India, it's explicitly part of the religious culture. That's why it's, uh, that's why it's problematic. Here, it's explicit, very explicitly not. I mean, most people who are, who are in, engaged in yoga are far from religious, and most yoga teachers and practitioners have no religious uh, relationship with their yoga practice. If there's an exception to the rule, there would be. Whereas in India, in that it's, it, it grew out of an Indian practice, but it was basically transformed into a form of exercise where the people who are practicing it now are really just doing it for the, the psychological and the physical benefit. So I don't think that it's a, um, it would have any, it would be problematic in any way. I guess it could be debatable if there are some uh, yoga studios where they still adopt some element of you know religious teaching or religious um, uh, you know religious ideas into the into the practice of yoga. But you know a lot of martial arts also have um, Asian religious origin, but they don't really refer to that ancient religious origin in any explicit way anymore. At least not in America. It's just become a form of self-defense and discipline and exercise. So I think in that case, it would be okay. It's like saying the Olympic Games should be prohibited because they came from Greek, you know, the Greek culture and they were related to the Greek idolatrous uh, culture and society as well. That's true, but I don't think anybody thinks that the sports that were, uh, that they competed in therefore became idolatrous sports. I think it's, it's, I think we can dis- distinguish between the two since the yoga has in and of itself a value, um, physical or psychological for the practitioners that say that is objectively real and is not tied to the, to the religious meaning. So it should be okay. Um, as opposed to celebrating New Year's or Halloween that has no benefit at all except eating candy, which is not really a benefit. Now, number three, uh, what is the number one piece of shalom bayit advice that I would give? That's a very good question. 
There are so many different pieces of advice and it's so personally tailored to individuals and their circumstances. I think that the number one piece of advice, wow, it's so hard. That's a tough question. Probably one of the toughest questions I've gotten in the series so far. I would say the number one question is, the number one piece of advice I would give is always look at yourself first before you look at the other person. And what I mean by that is if you're having problems, if you're having trouble, look at what you can do differently and how you can improve before you start cataloging what the other person can improve on. Because more often than not, you'll find that your behavior, that a change in your own behavior and a change in your own habits and a change in your own attitudes will cause a change in the habits of your partner that reflect your change. So that, you know, that, that actually, uh, there's a wonderful book, and I, it's a book that I recommend, actually, even though it's actually written for men, and it, it's written by, uh, by Rabbi Arush. And normally you would say, well, Rabbi Arush is more like a Breslov uh, background, and he's more Hasidic in his outlook, and uh, maybe a little bit Kabbalistic, and not exactly, not, not necessarily uh, in every way compatible with uh, the way that uh, we typically think and, and typically approach things. Even our approach to Judaism might be a little bit different uh, in, in some ways than, than his approach and his way of thinking, but the book that he has is um, on Shalom Bayit, is uh, which is called Garden of Peace, is really, really excellent. It's written, there's one written for men and there's one written for women. I never read the one written for women because it asks men not to read it. And I, I've only read the one written for men. I read it in Hebrew and I read it in English. And it's originally in Hebrew and it's translated to English. Um, and I've recommended it to many chatanim uh, in the past. And the reason why is because essentially what it says, and and I, and I think that the reason why he tells husbands not to read the book that's made for women and women not to read the book that's made for husbands is because basically he wants to address each member of the couple separately. And so he says to the men, basically, you should take responsibility for everything that goes on in the marriage. And you should realize that your spouse is a mirror of yourself. And when things are not going right, if you improve yourself, you will see that reflected in the behavior of your partner. But if you dig your heels in and insist on remaining the way that you are, you're gonna get the same response from your spouse again and again. And I've seen, and, and I, I understand, although I haven't, again, haven't read the one for women, but I understand that the book for women basically says the same thing, which is why he didn't want um, the men to read the women's book, because then they're gonna say, oh, look, I read in the book for women that it's, that it's all the woman's fault. And the woman will read the man's book and say, look, I read in the book for men that it's all the man's fault. Um, and that would confuse things and that would, be, that would defeat the purpose when the reality is I think that the advice he gives, it's very poignant and it's actually very effective, is to look at yourself first, to ask yourself what you can improve, what you can change about yourself to make the situation better before you ask what the other person should change. Because the thing that you have the most, the, really the only thing you have full control over in your life is your own choices. And if you see that there is discord and there is, uh, and there is lack of harmony in any relationship and you ask yourself, well, what have I done to contribute to it? What can I do to change? You, it, it won't happen immediately. It's not magic. But if you change yourself, change the way you approach that relationship, you'll see that gradually the uh, response that you get from the other partner from the partner in that relationship, or even from the group, if it's a group, will change as well. So that's the advice that I would give. The number one piece of advice, I think, 
Um, and it's really effective. And I've honestly, truthfully seen that book by Rabbi Arush save people's marriages. People have told me they were on the brink of their marriage falling apart. They read that book. They started following its guidelines and uh, committing themselves to improve themselves and to take the responsibility not to tell the other person what to do and not to argue with them and not to be in conflict with them, but to be, uh, but to be reflective and to be uh, introspective and to be working on themselves all the time and to see the other person, never to criticize, never to, never to rebuke, but just to work on themselves and naturally to see the other person adapt to their changes, that this is the, uh, this is the main point that he says. And it's true also with parents and children, uh, as well as with spouses. I think it's true in all relationships. I had recommended one time, somebody asked me to recommend books, and I recommended a book that many people were already familiar with, which is How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. It's a very famous book. It's a classic book. It's the best in its kind. There's no book on parenting better, uh, in my opinion. And uh, somebody said they can't hear me. Um, not sure why. Am I covering the speaker? Maybe. Is it better now? Can you hear me now? Okay. So yeah, it must have been that I was covering the speaker with the phone. Um, sorry about that. So there's no book better than this, How to Talk So Kids Can Listen and Listen So Kids uh, Will Talk. And that book, uh, basically, you could really distill that book to the same point that Rabbi Arush makes in his book, which is, that if you take it upon yourself to listen to the child, to understand the child, to reflect the feelings and thoughts of the child, rather than trying to shape the child into what you want them to be, then you create a relationship where they're able to communicate with you and open up and interact and grow and thrive. But if you're trying to uh, impose upon the other child and criticize and attack and... Uh, and deny them the ability to express their feelings and deny them the ability to, uh, uh, you know, to, to be who they are, so then you're going to find uh, more and more conflict. And I think that's, that's the number one piece of advice. There are other pieces of advice in Shalom Bay, but I would say that's the number one. Um, and since I was only asked for the number one, I don't want to give every piece of advice that I have. Um, then number four is, do, I think, do you think all Jews should attempt to make Aliyah? So that's a, um, that question is uh, it's hard for me to answer that as a personal question because that's really a question uh, not just about what I think, but what does Hashem think? Or what does Hashem say? So there is a mitzvah, Yishuv Eretz Yisrael, there's a mitzvah for the Jewish people to live in the land of Israel, to cultivate the land of Israel, to establish a nation in the land of Israel and to be a light unto other nations in the land of Israel. That was the first mitzvah that was given to Avraham Avinu in the time uh, that he was told to leave his home, to leave Ur Kasdim, and to head out to the land of Canaan at the time, which became the land of Israel. This was the initial, the very first mitzvah, really, that was given to a Jew as a Jew. And, of course, we were promised the land, and the land was meant to be a holy land that we uh, sanctify and we utilize in our mission to consecrate, uh, you know, to, to consecrate our lives and to sanctify God's name in the world. So is it a mitzvah for every Jew to live in Eretz Israel? I think that's clear that, of course, it's a mitzvah for every Jew to live in Eretz Yisrael, if they can. Now, are there are there exceptions? Are there uh, are there uh, circumstances where a person would not do that? Yes, if a person is not able uh, financially, uh, if there are economic reasons, financial reasons, 
other practical reasons that prevent them right now from being able to have a, uh, a life in Eretz Yisrael that would be uh, a life where they are self-sufficient and they are uh, able to succeed and thrive, then there are halachic parameters for when a person doesn't need to live in the land of Israel, and particularly financial situations that might prevent them from doing that. But if a person has the op- opportunity to move to the land of Israel, and it, even if it would require some sacrifices on their part, every change requires some sacrifices, but if they, they, a person has to be honest with themselves and say, am I just making excuses or is it a real reason? If it's a real reason that they're not able to move to Israel because of financial or employment uh, concerns or medical concerns or any concern that is a true practical concern, then, uh, then halacha allows for that person to remain outside of Israel. But also that we know that the, Torah, that the Tanakh criticized the Jews who did not come for the second temple when the second commonwealth was created, when, when, uh, when uh, Cyrus, when, uh, when the Persian king allowed the Jews to come to Israel and only a tiny number came, that there was a lot of criticism directed towards the Jews who didn't come because they were too comfortable in the lands where they had settled during the exile, they want to come. And it wasn't really because life was going to be that much better or that much worse. Um, They could have made a life. I mean, obviously the pioneers who established the modern state of Israel sacrificed a great deal. They lived in caravans and they lived, you know, on bare essentials and they really struggled to make Israel what it is today, but it's nothing like it was then. So does a person have to, a person has to be honest about whether they're just choosing luxury and comfort over being a part of the Jewish future or whether they have a genuine reason not to go. If they have a genuine reason not to go, I have no, uh, I have nothing else to say. That's, that is a genuine, legitimate reason not to go. It's not an excuse, it's a reason. But if the person is making excuses because they feel comfortable where they are, then they might not be fulfilling what God's mandate was for us to live in the land of Israel uh, whenever possible, even if it requires some sacrifices on our part, within reason, we should make sacrifices just like we would for any other move that was important to us. Uh, and you know, and I, I think that's I think that that's a, as clear an answer as I can give. How should a person? This is number five here. How should a person honor or respect parents who do or say things that are not respectable? Well, the. Uh, there is a halachic discussion of this. It depends what you mean by not respectable, I guess, and it also depends what you mean by respecting parents. The halacha gives us specific parameters as to what it means to respect our parents. It means the way we talk to them, the way that we treat them, the way that we act towards them. Uh, respect is actually positive things that we do. We serve them food. Uh, we take care of our parents. We show them honor in various ways. And then there's something called yirat avaim, reverence for parents, which means things we don't do, like we don't use our parents' first name, for example, we don't sit in their seat, and so on. Things that we would not do. We don't directly contradict them in an argument, but we try to do it, we, we express a difference of opinion in a way that is non-confrontational. These are halachot that relate to fear of parents, fear, not really fear, but reverence of parents and honor of parents. Kibud avaim and yirat avaim are two mitzvot of the Torah that are very important. Now, what about a parent that doesn't conduct themselves in a way that's respectable? Now, when you are respecting your parents, you're not respecting them because you are approving of or endorsing actions that they do. You're simply recognizing 
that they are the you know that they are the vehicle through which Hashem brought you into the world. They cre- they created you, and they they were a partner with Hashem in bringing you into the world. And therefore, in respecting your parents, you are in a sense showing honor to God who created you through your parents, and you're also showing a certain level of hakarat tov of. There's a, there's a discussion about whether really the reason for kibbutz im for respecting parents, is a more philosophical reason that you're respecting God through respecting your parents because they are the agents with God who brought you into the world, or whether it's a matter of of showing your sense of appreciation and gratitude to your parents for what they've done for you and bringing you into the world and raising you. Um, and, the, the, of course, the difference would, would be manifest in a case where, let's say, the parents didn't raise the child, so would they still be obligated to respect the parents simply on principle. So there's a discussion among the rabbis and issues like that, or if the parent is a criminal or something like that, do you still respect them? There were issues like that discussed by the rabbis. In general, we follow the rule of the Rambam. In most cases, the Rambam's ruling is that if, even if a parent is wicked, we still have to treat them with the respect and the reverence that the Torah ordains. We're not allowed to be disrespectful to them. And even if a parent like loses their mind, we have to be as respectful as possible, keeping our distance if necessary to make sure that we don't have to uh, act in a way that's disrespectful of them when we know that it's too difficult for us um, to do that. But the, the, the Gemara, the Talmud, and Masechet Kiddushin tells all kinds of stories about great rabbis and the extreme lengths that they went to, uh, to show honor and reverence to their parents, even when their parents sometimes had sort of lost their minds or when their parents had extreme demands or expectations of them. So the, it was recognized as the parents were a manifestation of the Shekhinah, their manifestation of the divine presence, not because of their particular actions, which you might not agree with or you might even think are bad, but because of what they represent. They represent the chain of God's creation. That's why in the Torah it says that a person should revere their parents and should keep Shabbat. What is the relationship? What's the connection between those two things? So some of the commentaries explain what is the relationship between respecting parents and keeping Shabbat. Shabbat is about God being the creation, the creator of the world. The creation of the world is uh, commemorated on Shabbat. And parents are your link in the creation. Hashem created the world way back when, at the beginning of time, and your parents created you. So they are also an expression of God's creation, God's creative power that he implanted in, and, uh, in the human being and that is, it is expressed in your parentage. So therefore, you are respecting God by respecting your parents. And that's why Kibbutz Ve'em, respecting parents, is on, if you look at the two luchot, the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, one of them contains the mitzvot that are between a person and God, and one of them contains the mitzvot that are between a person and another person, like not killing, not stealing, not committing adultery, etc. <clears throat> Kibbutz Ve'em, respecting parents, is actually on the first one, of the uh, tablets because it's considered to be um, an act of honoring God. So we don't think of it as honoring the, uh, the parent in particular we th- and their actions uh, or endorsing them. We think of it as, uh, as an honoring of what they represent in terms of reflecting God's creative power it, that they brought you into existence. That's usually how we understand it. The Rambam says if a parent is, uh, if a parent is wicked, so the so the person still the child still has to be respectful of them, but then after the parent dies, they don't have to show any respect uh, to their memory because they were a bad person. And after the person dies, they don't have that obligation anymore to show them respect. Uh, they can recognize that the person was wicked. 
If the person is not actually wicked, it's, it might be a matter of degree. You don't like things that they do or say, you don't agree with them, so you don't participate in those things or you try to keep your distance from those things, but we still have an obligation and it's a great test. In fact, the, the Talmud says that one of the rabbis said, oh, I, I'm jealous of people who are orphans because they don't have the great test of respecting parents. It's extremely difficult to be able to respect parents properly and they speak about that in the Talmud at great length, what a challenge it is and how high of a standard in theory it should be for uh, the respect that we are asked to show, even when the parents are not necessarily the most savory characters, and yet we show them respect because of what it represents. So you have to think of that. It's more about what they represent than about their individual personal behavior. If they engage in behavior that is not uh, honorable, so we distance ourselves from that behavior, and we don't involve ourselves in that behavior, we definitely don't respect that behavior or endorse it or participate in it, but we can still respect them for what they represent as our parents. Now, question number six. Does the Torah teach us anything about dealing with trauma? That is a fascinating question. I don't remember ever hearing that question before. Some of these questions are really original questions that I, you know, that I have not come across. Does the Torah teach us anything about dealing with trauma? Well, the one thing that I could think about that uh, might connect to the issue of trauma is, the, uh, is Aharon. Aaron is in a, a situation of trauma where his children uh, are killed the day that the Mishkan is being, is the, 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 the dedication of the Mishkan is being completed, the dedication of the tabernacle is being completed, and finally the Kohanim are assuming their role as officiants in, a, in this new tabernacle. And of course we know Nadav and Avihu, the two sons of Aaron, go in in an unauthorized way and they end up getting killed. And Aaron, of course, is very distraught. He's very taken aback by this. And it says, Vaidom Aaron. Aaron didn't say anything about it. He didn't speak his mind in the moment of, um, uh, in the moment of uh, uh, when the tragedy happened. Uh, and later on, we see that they were still reeling from that tragedy, even as they were attempting to continue with the service in the Beit HaMikdash. And even as... Um, uh, and, and even as the, uh, you know, even as emotionally it was extremely difficult for them maybe to muster the energy to do it, but they were, they were able to, they were able to go on. But the, the, if we're talking about the t- trauma, if there's so many different kinds of trauma, but I think that the, the most common trauma that a person experiences is the trauma of losing a loved one. There's obviously a lot of other traumas. And if the, if, if whoever the questioner is that I don't know who it is, is interested in different kinds of trauma, that might, be, that might have a different answer. But I think that what the Torah says about dealing with trauma is something very wise. The Torah always says that a person should, and, and the reason why I brought up Aaron is because Aaron is, a, is an extreme case. He's a case of somebody who has to put aside the immediate feelings of uh, pain in order to continue on with the service, which was a great challenge and a great demand made of him in that case. And everybody recognizes that that was not easy to do. What does the Torah typically say about a person who endures trauma? Well, basically, the Torah gives the prescription that I think is, the, is clearly, evidently the wisest, uh, the wisest uh, uh, prescription, which is that a person, first of all, has to deal with their own emotions um, and, uh, and do their best to feel those emotions, to experience them, to process them, to consider them and to, to absorb them. And that's going to be a, a process that takes time. And that's why in mourning we have a shiva. 
We have a seven days and then we have a shloshim, we have a 30 days. And for parents, we even have a whole year of mourning. And this period of mourning is not for the deceased, even though we tend to think of the, oh, we're saying Kaddish for the deceased. That keeps us connected to them. But really, the, the burial, the reason why we so quickly bury our dead is because the respect that we show to them is by laying them to rest as quickly as possible. And then they're in God's hands, really. And then the shift, the, you know, there's a shift in focus onto the mourners uh, for during the Shiva. Uh, that's the essential focus, is for them to process the loss. And that's why there are many halachot about when you visit a house of Shiva, you're not really supposed to talk. You're supposed to wait for the mourners to speak and so on. A lot of people feel uncomfortable. They feel awkward following the actual rules. And so they, sit, they speak, and even though maybe they're not supposed to. But technically, the mourner is supposed to be the one who initiates the conversation. And the people who visit the mourner are supposed to be there to help them uh, process their feelings and thoughts. So the, the Torah gives us a period of time, seven days of intense uh, absorption of the trauma and 30 days of a little bit, you know, of a slower easing into normal life, which is the 30 days. And then the, the, the rabbis say, and the Rambam actually is very emphatic about this. He says, a person who doesn't mourn at all is a cruel person. A person who doesn't re- react at all to a tragedy that befalls them, there's something wrong with that person. They're indifferent. They don't fully appreciate what's happened. They don't, they don't recognize the significance of the loss of, the, of a human life, or they're in denial about their own mortality and they don't want to face death or, or they're in denial about how deeply this situation has affected them and then they're unhealthy. They're psychologically unhealthy if they don't mourn. On the other hand, if a person mourns too much and they go overboard, that's also psychologically unhealthy. That's also something that uh, is not appropriate. And therefore the Rambam says the, the, the Torah and the rabbis established a very simple procedure uh, which is seven days and 30 days, and in the case of parents, a year. And then after that, a person really should be able to move forward. A healthy person should be able to move forward, not to mourn too much, not to go to an extreme of never being able to get over a tragedy. We have to pick ourselves up, eventually move on, but not being so quick to move away from the tragedy and the trauma that we don't process it, that we don't give it the time that it needs or the time that we need really to work it through. So it's a very delicate balance. A person could get sucked into the abyss of depression and that's very dangerous. On the other hand, the person can be in complete denial and, indif- and be totally indifferent and there's something also unhealthy about that. Interestingly, in the, the Torah tells us not to do extreme actions when it comes to mourning, like gashing ourselves, you know, balding, the things that the idolaters used to do, gashing their bodies. We see this, even, even the Iranians, uh, they do this in some of their, uh, uh, in Iran, some of the Muslims, they do this, they do, cut themselves and things like that. This was something that goes back to pagan times. The Torah says specifically you shouldn't do that. And it's interesting, the Ramban, Nachmanides, not the Ram, I was mentioning before Maimonides, but Nachmanides actually says in his commentary there that a person uh, shouldn't go to extremes in mourning. Uh, it shouldn't be, you know, because the, w- going to an extreme in mourning, uh, he, he says that all of the, these mitzvot are to teach you not to go to an extreme and to be unhealthy uh, in your mourning because you should recognize that the person has moved on to olam haba, they have moved on to, to eternity, and, uh, and that life on this earth is, is temporary, but, life, but there's a spiritual life that's eternal. And a person who goes to an extreme in mourning is denying that. They're, uh, they're, they're not able to, they're either uh, uh, too attached to, uh, to this world or they're not, they don't recognize that the, that the next world is real. And so a person should have a, a healthy balance 
of working through their emotion on one side while uh, preparing to move forward on the other. And the classic case of somebody, of course, in the Torah who didn't overcome their trauma was Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov Avinu, when, from the time that Yosef disappeared from his life, wasn't able to get over it. It says that all of his children and his grandchildren tried to console him and he refused. He said, I won't be consoled. I'm going to go to my grave in despair. I'm never going to be able to move on. And in fact, that caused him to lose out on any relationship, on any prophetic inspiration from God. For all the years that, that Yosef was not at home, Yaakov did not experience any prophecy because he was so, um, he was so enmeshed and he was so immersed in his, uh, uh, in, in his mourning. So that's unhealthy response to trauma is not to be able to find a way out of it. As long as we're alive and as long as we have the opportunity to grow and as long as we have the ability to use the energy God has given us to do good, we cannot allow any trauma to define us or to destroy us. We have to move forward. But we have to be healthy and wise and recognize that we can't just dismiss it either. We have to be uh, aware of our emotions. We have to allow our emotions to speak for themselves and we have to work through them. So there is a healthy balance there always. And I think the Torah shows you through the two extremes, Aharon, who has to overcome his trauma, put it aside right away. And later on, of course, it comes back. It emerges. It, it, it reemerges a little bit later in the story. But he, he has to push it aside. And Yaakov, on the other hand, who does the opposite, who lets it take over his life, both of these extremes are not what's expected of the ordinary person. The ordinary person, all of us, are expected to work through things on a timetable of some kind of rough timetable uh, that the Torah gives us of a process of growth. I remember one time somebody told me who wasn't religious and they said to me that they, they lost a relative and their family didn't observe Shivan Shloshim. They were Jewish, but they weren't religious. They didn't observe Shivan Shloshim and all that. And they, they, they didn't observe the typical Jewish uh, uh, process of mourning. And the person said, you know what? I, I wish that they did because the, the process that the, that the halacha gives is, you know, works. It works. It, it tells you what to do, how to respond. And the problem is you don't know what to do. You don't know how to respond. So it gives you a pathway to respond. And that's why it's so healthy to follow the path of the Torah when it comes to dealing with tragedy in life. Number seven, what midah do you think is the most important character trait to work on? Um... Character trait-wise, I think that the most important trait that we need to work on is humility. I think that the most important character trait that the Torah emphasizes that great people had was the character of humility. We know that Moshe Rabbeinu, as wise as he was, as great as he was, is described as anav. Ve'aish Moshe anav me'od. The man Moses was very, very humble, more than anybody on earth. The greatest person, the person closest to God, was the most humble. And with humility comes many, many other benefits. In fact, that the Talmud tells us you had two schools of rabbis, two groups of rabbis, one Beit Hillel and one Beit Shammai, very famous. Beit Shammai, it says, were the greater intellectuals. Their ideas were sharper. Their, their, their understanding was deeper. But we don't follow them in halacha. We always follow Beit Hillel. Why do we follow Beit Hillel? Because Betilel was, hum- they, it says they were humble. And of course, we know that Shammai was the father of, was the head of the house of Shammai, Beit Shammai. And Hillel, the Rabbi Hillel, was the head of the founder of the school of Hillel. And they themselves had characters that were very different from one another. Shammai was more tough, demanding, and rigid, and a purist in terms of his ideas. And Hillel was much more flexible 
and modest and willing to work with people uh, and, and to find uh, points of compromise or uh, to, to, uh, to be willing to meet people where they were rather than set a high standard and expect people to reach it. And so they, the schools that they developed and their students kind of followed a similar path. Beit Hillel, the house of Hillel was much more humble. They would listen. They would, they would, uh, they, they would listen to others. They would, when they would report the arguments between themselves and Beit Shammai, they would always mention Beit Shammai first, meaning they would always give deference to Beit Shammai. The idea is that humility is a, uh, is, it was a quality that was so outstanding and is so important that the halakha follows Beit Hillel because they were the ones who would be the best teachers and the best role models and the, mo- the ones who were the most acceptable to and accessible to the people. And that's why they were the ones the halakha followed because of their humility. And the Talmud also says that humility is the key to learning. A person who's humble, it says just like water will always flow. This is a very famous statement in the Talmud. Just like water always flows from a higher place to a lower place, wisdom flows to the lowest place, meaning if a person is low, if a person is humble, if a person is simple, they will gain wisdom because they're open-minded to understanding. A person who's arrogant thinks they know everything, they can't learn anything. But a person who is humble, who says, I'm going to question everything. I don't know anything. I'm looking at this with fresh eyes. I'm not making any assumptions. I'm not making, I don't have any preconceived notions. That person is the person who is going to learn the most. Not only that, but the person who is worried about uh, who is who is humble is not worried about impressing other people. He doesn't or she doesn't have to ask the questions that sound smart. He or she doesn't have to, you know, give the answers that sound smart. They're able to say, I don't know. They're able to say, I don't understand. They're able to say, I'm curious about this. I want to investigate it. I want to do research. That quality of saying, look, I don't really know. I want to look into it. I want to explore it. I'm not so confident. That quality is the quality that is the key to growing as a person because when you're humble, not only you personally, will, you will grow in your wisdom and your understanding, you'll be able to look at yourself with a more honest and, uh, and accurate uh, perspective and be able to correct the flaws that need correcting and, and, and uh, of course, develop and strengthen the areas in which you're already strong, become even stronger because you have the humility and the, uh, the ability to look um, at yourself honestly and truthfully, but also it affects the way that we deal with other people, that when we look at ourselves, um, when we have modesty and uh, we are self-effacing and we're humble in our dealings with others, so then we, uh, our relationships with others, like I said in the beginning when somebody asked about Shalom Bayit, about uh, getting along with spouses or getting along with groups or getting along with anybody, um, humility and the ability to uh, not... Uh, assume that you're always in the right, not assume that the other person always is always wrong. And the, the open-mindedness that comes with humility is also the key to getting along with other people. In fact, it says that Moshe Rabbeinu, we just mentioned it last night in the parashat class, in fact, that, that uh, Moshe Rabbeinu, when, he, when Hashem revealed himself to Moshe Rabbeinu for the first time at the burning bush, Moshe Rabbeinu covered his face. He didn't want to look. And the, and the rabbis praised the humility of Moshe Rabbeinu that he didn't have, he didn't think himself so great that he could have an understanding of Hashem that was so high, that was on such a uh, such a uh, a lofty level at that point. He recognized that he had much more that he needed to work on before he would get to that level, and that's what a person should have in their in their in their development. And the rabbis say a person v'etznuim chokma says v'etznuim chokma means that with with humble people is wisdom. Why? Because they're not showing off. They're not trying to sound smart. They're not trying to sound like. They're not trying to impress anybody. They're really searching for the truth. So they grow in their personal life and they grow in their relationship with other people. 
And this is true even in the secular world, that if you look at the greatest discoveries oftentimes were made, oftentimes were made by the people who were not a part of the academic establishment, not the ones who were looking to say and do and publish the content that was impressing other people. They were the people that were humbly seeking the truth um, just for the sake of the truth. Those people were the ones who really uh, shine the most and grow the most. So I think humility is really the key. And I think that the Rambam actually in Hilchot Deod says that uh, in the laws of character traits, the Rambam says that, uh, you, that anger is the worst trait and, and uh, anger and arrogance are the worst traits and humility is the most valuable trait that a person can have because it makes them receptive to learning and to growth. We have another question. Do you think social media is mostly helping or harming in terms of spreading Torah and Hashem's light into the world? How can we separate ourselves from the Sheker, the falsehood? Should we delete everything? <coughs> well, it's a, it's a, um, I guess it's been said before, and I, I'm sure we've even said it in one of our, one of these Q&A sessions. I'm sure we've said this ourselves, but it's been said many times that technology is something that's neither bad nor good. Um, like many things in life, technology is something that in and of itself is parav. It's neutral. It's about what you do with it. It's about what you use it for. Uh, that's what makes all the difference. Um, in my view, the uh, like every other like every other tool, it's a tool. You can use a tool for many different things. You can take a sword and you can kill somebody. You can take a sword and you can cut open a watermelon with it. Uh, you know, you can do all kinds of. You can take. You can like it says in the. Uh, in the Navi, in his famous poetry of Yeshayahu, that one day they will beat their weapons into gardening tools and, and they will use them to cultivate the land of Israel, meaning the same tools that were once war tools will now be tools of something positive. So tools are, in and of themselves, uh, don't have any moral uh, label of good or bad. What has a label of good or bad is how we use those tools. And I think that's, you know, that's probably been said before. But when it comes to, uh, and, and then, so therefore the question becomes our free choice, our freedom of choice and what we decide to do with the tools that we have. Um, it's like, is having time a good thing? Well, for a bad person, it's bad because the, person who, the bad person who has a lot of time on his hands is going to use it for bad things. It's like the, the rabbis say, Sleep, when a wicked person sleeps, it's good for him and good for the world because we don't have to deal with him. When a, when a tzaddik sleeps, it's bad for the world because we're missing out. When a w- wicked person sleeps, it's good for us. Right? So for him to have more time on his hands is bad. Um, it's all relative to the use that we put it to. So in the case of technology, there is such a wealth of knowledge available and wisdom available on social media that a person who makes intelligent choices in their use of social media and their use of technology and the use of the internet has an incredible and vast amount of opportunity to learn and to grow immediately at their fingertips. I think that is a blessing. I think that is a, uh, that's an extraordinary blessing for us nowadays that we have that, that one can sit even during this, the time of the most extreme quarantine that we had this past year, a person could sit at their computer and learn Torah from teachers literally across the world or learn anything else that they wanted to learn as a matter of fact. I mean, there's all kinds of, there's literally courses on anything, everything that you would want to know or even many things that you wouldn't want to know uh, that are available 
online at the touch, you know, at the you know, click of a, uh, of a key on your keyboard, literally. Now, again, there comes the question of what is the best use of your time? Uh, should you learn, should you, should you take a course on basket weaving? Should you take a course on Marvel superheroes? Maybe that wouldn't be the best use of your time. I don't want to get into any politically, uh, you know, uh, politically charged debates about that. Uh, maybe, but maybe that isn't the best use of your time. But what I do know is that uh, for a person who wants to do good, for a person who wants to hear Divrei Torah, who wants to learn, wants to improve themselves, there is an infinite, practically infinite wealth of resources available now. For the person who wants to spread messages that are positive, there is a, an infinite potential for spreading messages that are positive. When we talk about the Mashiach coming and we read in the Navi that, oh, the Navi, the, the Mashiach is going to strike the world with the rod of his mouth, meaning his message is going to go out to the entire world. His message of education, his spiritual message, his message of truth is going to go out to the entire world. Uh, thousands of years ago, how would they have imagined that one person would be able to have a reach that far? Now we understand how we would be able to have a reach that far. Because, he has the, because nowadays we have the tools that we can send the message across the entire globe. So anybody who wants to get a message out there, of course, whether it's good or bad, whether it's, you know, that, that's where the problem comes in. A message that's good can be spread around the world, so can a message that's bad. So I don't think that this, that my opinion is that fighting the bad is not the way to go most of the time. I'm not talking about the bad, meaning like, God forbid, anti-Semitism or God forbid, violence. Those things have to be stopped and have to be stamped out and have to be fought against and, and eliminated. That's for sure. We're not talking about that. Actual evil, we're not talking about. But when it comes to messages of truth versus falsehood, I don't believe that we should censor or delete or erase or suppress ideas that differ from our own. I think that our ideas speak for themselves. Our truth speaks for itself. Um, as I had once said, uh, I see that Karen is on the uh, is on the uh, on the uh, discussion here, and in one of the podcasts that we the podcast that we did together, um, I had mentioned that the the, the biggest uh, uh, I'm giving you a shout out. You know the biggest um, uh, you know the biggest enemy that we have is apathy, is lack of engagement. But that the Jewish people, we never had to proselytize. We never wanted to proselytize to convert people to Judaism. Because people who proselytize are insecure in their ideas. People who proselytize have to force other people to believe in their ideas. Otherwise, they, um, uh, otherwise they feel that they're not justified. And until they can convince and force everybody to believe in their ideas, they're not going to, they, they can't rest. Because they'll feel that maybe I'm wrong because people don't all agree with me. I need to go out and I need to proselytize them. Judaism never said that. Judaism said if we speak the truth, if we have idea, if we know these ideas are true, we're not afraid of anything. We have no reason to be afraid of any other ideas because we have full confidence in the truth of our ideas and in the truth of our Torah. We don't have to force anybody. We don't have to compel anybody. In fact, it says in the days of Mashiach, we won't allow converts anymore. Why not? Because maybe they're just converting because the Jewish people will be so successful. They'll see the material blessings of, uh, of the Jews at that time and they'll want to join for the wrong reason. We won't be able to tell anymore whether they're joining for the right reason or the wrong reason. They'll be suspect. Okay? But now they're only joining because they believe in the truth of the ideas and the truth of the Torah. The point is that we don't believe that we don't have any insecurity about facing false teaching, facing false ideas. We don't have to, we don't have to uh, censor it. We don't have to delete it. We just have to build up our knowledge and understanding of the true ideas. If a person has knowledge of Torah that is strong, 
that is deep, they have nothing to fear. Instead of teaching people how to respond to ideas with which they don't agree or how to avoid ideas that could have a bad influence on them, just deepen their understanding of the truth of Torah and they won't have anything to fear. They don't have anything to worry about. And uh, because the Torah speaks for itself and anybody who really understands it will see that for themselves, that it speaks for itself and doesn't require anybody to, uh, uh, you know, to, to proselytize on its behalf. Because when you have to proselytize for something, it's like I always say, my kids know that I always say this, if you, if you have to tell people that you're smart, you might not be that smart. If you have to tell people that you're popular, you might not be that popular. And if you have to tell people that your religion is true, might not be true. It should speak for itself. And so since the ideas and the truths of Judaism speak for themselves, we have nothing to fear that there are competing ideas out there because ultimately the truth will win out. We just have to use these media to broadcast, to share the wisdom of Torah, not to force anybody to share the wisdom of Torah because we have confidence and we have faith. We trust in the truth of the Torah that it, that it will speak for itself, that people who engage with it and see it, understand it, they will be drawn to it. They will appreciate it and uh, they will embrace it um, to whatever level is appropriate for them to embrace it. So um, I think that was the last of the questions for tonight. I think it's been really nice having this uh, ongoing uh, Q&A. Uh, every time I think it's the last one, you, uh, the group requests another one. I'm totally fine with doing it. I think it's a lot of fun. And it's interesting for me because the questions are all different and they're so varied. And so it gives us the opportunity to talk about such an array of topics. And I don't like to see the questions beforehand. I like to see them as we're going because then it also makes it interesting for me. I get a surprise instead of feeling that I'm just, uh, that I prepared something and I'm, you know, just uh, reciting to you something I prepared. So it's more fun for me too. So I'm happy to continue with this if that's what the group would like to do another uh, another session, if they still have questions that they feel would be meaningfully answered in this forum. But otherwise, we could have another uh, another series coming up of some other topic uh, in the weeks ahead. Obviously, it's a little bit early to start on Purim maybe, but uh, maybe something else. I had a, um, I actually had the 